Hello, welcome to a special pre-recorded edition of The Naked Scientists from the Cambridge Science Centre for the wonderful assembled audience. Hello to all of you. My name is Chris Smith and we're in the company of three experts this week who are going to tell us all about their science and their science looks at things that happened millions to hundreds of millions of years ago. Let's meet them. So first to my right, Alex Liu. Hello, hello Alex. Tell us about you. I'm at the University of Cambridge. I'm a paleontologist and my area of expertise is looking at the fossils of the very earliest animals. So we're looking around 500 million years ago. And sitting to Alex's uh, right, Stephanie. Stephanie Pierce. hello. Where are you from and what do you do? Yeah, so I work at the Royal Veterinary College in London and I'm a vertebrate paleontologist. So I work on animals that have backbones and I specifically focus on a period of time known as the waterland transition. So this is a period of time when animals were venturing out of the water onto land and eventually, of course, they dominated the land and diversified all over the place and, of course at the very end, turned into humans. Dinosaurs turned into humans. <laughs> Not some dinosaurs. Them, some of them are still around today, <laughs> looking at the University of Cambridge, Cleontel, yeah. You didn't have vets for dinosaurs, though. What are you doing working at a vet school? Well, actually, there's a really good facility there known as the Structure and Motion Lab, and the Structure and Motion Lab looks at the relationship between the skeleton and the muscles of an animal and how that helps the animal move, so how it helps it walk and run and gallop. And so one of the reasons that I work there is that I can use the facilities in order to look at how modern animals move and then trace that back into the fossil record to try and get an understanding of how these very early animals moved as they were venturing out onto the land. You know why Tyrannosaurus got called Tyrannosaurus rex? Are you telling a joke? Well, well, (laughs) because when it moved, you see, everything in its path got wrecked. Uh. So So any questions, I guess, on, on how things moved? Not any questions, but I'll do my best. Thank you very much. Stephanie Pierce. And to Stephanie's right is John Tennant. John, tell us about you. Hi, I'm a PhD student at Imperial College, and I look at large-scale patterns in the fossil record, and in particular catastrophic events known as mass extinctions. And the group I focus on in particular are anything with four feet, four wings, or four flippers, and these are called tetrapods. So we're tetrapods, but we're a little bit later than the kind of stuff I look at. So the particular period I focus on is the Jurassic Cretaceous boundary about 145 million years ago during the reign of the dinosaurs. Everyone's heard of dinosaurs dying out, you know, in a fairly catastrophic way. But there were other things that went extinct before that then. Oh, yeah. You know, many, many groups have gone extinct before. Many groups of reptiles and mammal-like reptiles have gone extinct. If it wasn't for things going extinct way back in history, then we wouldn't even be around today. So should we be thankful for them? Well, we'll dig into that deep time in just a second. So get your thinking caps on. Any questions to do with any of the things that our speakers have mentioned, that's all fair game. Sitting to their right, we're going to get experimental because Dave and Kate have got a whole load of hands-on stuff for you to do. What have you got in mind for us this time? Dave, let us in on a secret. So we're going to be looking at bones, we're going to be looking at how how we move and how we can work out how fast dinosaurs moved, and we're looking at why animals are the shapes they are. Everybody, please welcome Alex Liu, Stephanie Pierce, John Tennant, Kate Lamble and Dave Ansell. This week's Naked Scientist live on BBC Radio Cambridgeshire. So Alex, tell us a bit about your work and how life began. How can we study that? Well, in terms of when life began, we're looking around 3.8 billion years ago. Um, So the Earth is around 4.6 billion years ago, and for almost a billion years, 
There's no evidence in the fossil record of any life at all on the planet. But at around 3.8, we get the first evidence of fossilised cells, so things looking like modern bacteria. And it seems that for the next almost 3 billion years, we don't get any fossils of anything that's bigger than those bacteria-sized organisms. Slowly they become a little bit more complex, but generally there's, there's nothing at all. And it's only in the period I particularly look at, around 500 to 600 million years ago, that we see the first large fossils, things that you can see without the use of a microscope. The earliest ones are called the Ediacaran biota, because they come from the Ediacaran period, which was very recently named, the same as the Jurassic or the Cretaceous. It's very similar. But what, what about the when you say life got started after a, a billion years or, or so, but there's not really any fossil record of it? How do we know life got started 3.94 billion years well, ago? Well, it could have got started earlier, and we're just not seeing the record of it. We say that it started around 3.8 because... That is a time where we see the first fossils of these bacterial cells. But you can see fossilised bacteria? Yes. What do they look like? I mean, obviously bacteria, <laughs> presumably. Yes. But, but what do they actually look like? Where do you find them? The oldest ones are in Greenland and in Western Australia. And the two main forms are either small rod-shaped things, like drain pipes, but on a very microscopic scale, or ball-shaped spheres. How do we know that they're microorganisms, though? and not just, say, rock formations? The way we look at it is to look at the chemistry of what they're actually made of and the chemistry of the surrounding rock as well. And so if they're real cells, they will have been made of carbon, or at least they'd have had some carbon within them. And biological carbon has a very distinct signature that we can see that it is very different to any carbon that is formed non-biologically. And so if we look at the chemistry of the carbon we see that makes up these fossils, we can determine whether they are really biological or whether they're not. Any questions? Um, let's come to you. What's your name? My name's Liz and I'm from Longstanton. And my question is, you must go looking on purpose to find fossils that small because you wouldn't possibly find them by accident. So do people look everywhere? Why would they look in Western Australia and Greenland? There's only certain places around the world that have rock types of particular ages. And generally, the older the rocks get, the more they've been subjected to pressure and temperature. And therefore, the original fossils that you might see in them and the chemical signatures you might get from them, they become less reliable the further you go back. And so when we're looking for rocks about 3.8 billion years old, most of the ones that we find on the planet are either buried under other rocks or igneous or metamorphic, so they're not suitable environments they're not places where the organisms would have lived in the first place so we need very specific sedimentary rocks so sands and mudstones and things like that and we also need them to have not been crushed or heated to the extent that all the fossils are lost and there's very few places in the world that that happens which is why people focus on let's say northern greenland and they will go and look specifically for evidence of fossils in those regions any other questions Hi, I'm Neil from Cambridge. So when you find these, how do you actually know how old they are? So in rock sequences, the rocks are all made up of different types of minerals. And there's a particular mineral called zircon, which isn't a very large component of the rocks. There's not many of them in the rocks. But they're very, very useful because they form in volcanoes, generally. And when they erupt, the volcanoes erupt, these zircons are deposited in the ash 
But as they crystallize and go from a liquid state to a solid state, they trap within them various elements. And so uranium is one that is regularly trapped. But uranium has various states or isotopes that decay. And so we know the rate at which they decay. And so each of these zircons is like a tiny clock. And if we can measure the amount of uranium in those zircons compared to the amount of lead, which is what the uranium decays to, and we know the, exactly how long it takes for that ratio to occur, we can measure lots of different zircons from around the fossils and compare all of those ages, and we should get a very definite single one that dates the rocks. So how do you then turn those tiny microorganisms into the big life that then you have beautiful examples of in front of you. Tell us about these. The microfossils, as I said, for about 3 billion years, we don't see very much else other than these bacterial forms. And then suddenly, around 700 million years ago, you get the first evidence of things that were getting slightly larger. And there's lots of different ideas for why this might have taken place. Um, a rise in oxygen levels is one big idea. There's also various glaciation events that may have covered the whole planet in ice for tens of millions of years at a time, at about this time, and they may have played a role in preparing the planet for larger organisms, making it more habitable for them. And so those organisms very rapidly diversify into lots of different forms, but they're very unusual. And although we can tell that they're probably complex organisms, we can't say for certain that they're animals because they don't look anything like any modern animal that we know of. Now, I've got a few here. A lot of these fossils resemble leaves or fern fronds. So this is one from Leicestershire in Charnwood Forest, if any of you are familiar with that. And it's called Charnia. It's one of the earliest macrofossils, large fossils, first to be found from rocks of this age, and secondly to have actually lived on Earth at any point. How do you know it's an animal and not a plant? We don't. That is the main focus of my research, is trying to find out exactly what these creatures were. They could have been fungal, they could have been animals. They probably weren't plants just because of the environments that we find them in. So these are all found in marine rocks, marine sediments, that were laid down under the sea at a depth of around a kilometre or so. And the important thing about that is that light can't penetrate that deep into the oceans. So there's no way these could have photosynthesized in the way that modern plants do. Kate? I've got a question that's come in on Facebook that's related to that. And Joe's asked, is it frustrating studying creatures that you'll never get to see? Slightly. It, it does mean that you'll never be able to know whether you are absolutely right about the ideas that you've come up with. But it also does mean that no one can prove you wrong <laughs> very easily. That's, that does help. What's your name? Maluka, and I'm from Cambridge. And my question is... Well, the microorganisms that you find, roughly how big are, are they? So, like, are they tiny, or can you see them with the naked eye? Are they the sort of same sort of size as we see microorganisms today, or, or are they much smaller in history? How do they relate? They're comparable to, one, to microbes that we find today. If you think of a millimetre, typically bacterial cells, you're looking at a hundredth to a thousandth of a millimetre in length, and so you can't see them with your naked eye. You'd need a microscope. But luckily, universities have lots of microscopes, and so it's very, very easy for us to study them if we prepare them in the right way. There's a big jump, therefore, between turning from something that's a, a thousandth of a millimetre across to these specimens you've got in front of you, which are roughly the size of your hand. So how do you think that happened? 
That's one of the biggest questions in paleontology, and it's very difficult to, to work out. It's the switch from organisms being single cells to becoming multicellular and grouping together not only to just survive as a colony, but to actually start to differentiate all of the tissues to do certain roles. So some of the cells will, will start feeding, some cells will be just for respiring or breathing, and then that's a very complex biological problem. And it is really the biologists who are looking into that rather than the paleontologists because we can't see changes on that scale from the fossils that we can find in the fossil record. The biologists are the only ones who can actually look at how those processes might be taking place. My name is Nico and I'm from Long Stanton. And my question is, do you know how long the creatures lived? We know that they lasted for, as a species, for millions of years. But each individual one, we don't know at all. Some of the Ediacaran fossils I look at, the way that they're preserved is underneath volcanic ashes. So we know exactly what they looked like when they died, because it's almost like Pompeii. You had a big volcanic eruption that's completely smothered lots of living organisms all together on the seafloor. And so we get this replica of the communities... And we can see what the whole seafloor looks like and all the organisms on it, but we can't tell how old any of those individual organisms were. Any other questions? Uh, hello, my name's Arusha and I'm from Cambridge. And my question is, what you research is fascinating. Um, is it useful? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a taxpayer is saying, look, I'm paying for this. <laughs> uh, yes, firstly, it is a... Very curiosity-based project, I have to admit, in terms of we will want to know as humans where we come from. Some people look to religious sites for guidance on how that might have happened. As a scientist, I look for how we might have evolved and how life might have evolved. The key questions I look at are some of the more fundamental ones in explaining the diversity of uh, the planet we see around us. But you're right that in the end it is just a curiosity-driven question. The thing that we do that does help society you know, one of the things is the techniques we need to look at some of these fossils really are pushing the boundaries of science and the machinery and the equipment is often developed in scientific labs looking at questions like these that then gets farmed out into companies and turned into beneficial equipment for the medical industry or even to end up in your own home so indirectly science as a whole actually is not just curiosity-driven. Often that's what gets us started on some of the questions, but it can lead to very useful societal impacts. Alex Liu, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> hey, let's get experimental now on our special Naked Scientists, which is pre-recorded at the Cambridge Science Centre. Caden, Dave... What have you got for us? When I think of paleontology, what you guys get up to, I could be imagining it, but I think of people uncovering bones. But what are bones made of? Dave has promised to show me. So what's going on? So we're going to have a look at the two main constituents of bone. And for this, we're going to need a volunteer to act as the fingers of the audience. Yeah, I definitely don't want to touch the bones. Who, who's up for it? I saw a hand shoot up right at the back in the red jumper. I'm going to get you some, to wear some gloves, though, because safety first. What's your name? Graydon. So as we think that birds evolved from dinosaurs, I thought we'd have a look at some chicken bones. So we've basically got some dinosaur bones here, but with less of the teeth. So are these normal chicken bones, Dave, or have you done anything to them? So to start off with, we'll have a look at a perfectly normal chicken bone. 
So if you look at a normal chicken bone, it's quite strong. Can you, can you feel that? Have a go. How strong is it? Quite strong. Do you want to give it a bash against the table? Let's see if we can test it to extremes. Okay. We might have broken it. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay, so Dave, what could we do to change this? Okay, so bone is actually a composite. It's not just a piece of rock or something simple. It's made of two components. One of them is the calcium phosphate, which has got lots of calcium in it, which is why you want to drink lots of milk, which has got lots of calcium in it, which is good for your bones. And the other one is a protein. It's called collagen, and it's basically what your ears are made out of. So how would you try and get rid of that in a bone to see what it does? So the first thing I thought we would do is try and get rid of some of this calcium phosphate. And the way you do this is basically to pickle your bone. So what I've done is I... How do you pickle a bone, Dave? That, you said that like it was a normal thing to do of an evening. Is it not? So one evening uh, I took some bones and put them in some vinegar and then have left them for... These, these haven't really been left quite long enough. They've only been left for sort of three or four days. Okay, I can smell that from here. Great, Eden, can you smell that? Yeah. Unpleasant. Okay, so what should we see if it's been dissolved? So you can see it on the ends of this. So, Graydon, can you feel the ends of that and give it a good squash? Is it different from the last one you felt? Yeah. How's it different? Is it squishier? It's squishier, smoother. So this is what you'd expect. We've dissolved out all the hard calcium phosphate and just we've left the soft, flexible collagen. So it's basically turned into the same material your ears are made out of. So it's a bit floppy. Squishy. Everyone can give it a go in the audience if you haven't had a go up here. So can we get rid of the other component of bone instead then? So the other way, you want to get rid of this collagen, which is just a kind of protein. And basically, if you cook things really, really hot, it basically destroys all the organic matter in them and the protein just turns into charcoal. Really, I can notice something different about this one just from looking at it. What's different about this one? It's much darker than the other ones. So it looks like it's been burnt. So what should we feel on this one? So this should now, it has a bit of carbon in it, but mostly it's just a calcium phosphate. I want you to try and take that, see, try, try and bend it. It's broken much easier than the last one. So why would it break a lot easier, Dave? So although you've got the really hard bits and it still feels quite hard, there's nothing holding those crystals together. So when you bend it, they ju- it just snaps and it's very, very brittle. So the wonderful thing about bone is it combines the kind of tough, slightly stretchy properties of the collagen and the hard properties of the calcium phosphate to make something that's really, really tough and very, very rarely breaks unless you try very hard with a motorbike. So um, do we find both of these different types of substances in the bones that we find in fossils? I think you can find the calcium phosphate. That's the thing which is more like a rock, so it's more likely to hang around for a long time. But you can also find, if there are some researchers who've done dissolving away all this calcium phosphate in fossils, and they're left with something which looks a bit like proteins. And when they look at the proteins from dinosaur bones, real dinosaur bones, they discover that they're very, very like chickens. So it's another piece of evidence showing us that dinosaurs are related to birds far closer than to mammals like us. This is putting my Sunday roast in a whole new light. Uh, Can we all say thank you and very, very well done to Graydon here? You're listening to a special edition of The Naked Scientist, which is being recorded at the Cambridge Science Centre with a wonderful assembled audience. Hello to all of you. And three wonderful guests. Now, so far we've heard from Alex Liu, who's looking at where the first life on Earth came from. Our next guest is um, Stephanie Pierce, who's from the Royal Veterinary College in London. And you actually work on how things moved look at how things evolved and moved from being in an aquatic environment to living on land. Why is that a challenge for things coming out of the water? The challenge is is that in the water we usually find things like fish and 
fish have fins and they can float around in a very buoyant way. But on land, that just doesn't work. You can't move around on land with fins and the air doesn't keep you buoyant. So in order to come out of the water onto land, you have to reconstruct your whole skeleton, all your muscles, your physiology, your sensory systems, how you deal with dehydration, all sorts of things in order to be able to survive out of water and under the forces of gravity. So it's not trivially just crawling out of the water one day and going onto land. There's a lot of changes that have to happen to an animal to make it capable of surviving on land for any period of time. Yes, there's a whole suite of morphological and biological changes that need to occur in order for this major transition to happen. Do we know what order they must have happened in? Did they all happen at once? Did they happen sort of slowly, everything at the same time? What do we know about this? So it happened in a period of time known as the Devonian, and that's about 400 million years ago. And it happened basically over about a 50 million year period. At the beginning of this period, we find fish, and at the end of this period, we find land animals. And these land animals are known as tetrapods. And tetrapods are all animals that have four limbs with digits, so fingers and toes. What is striking to me is that you're talking about a period which is not that long after the period that Alex was talking about. He's got some of the most primitive life, or at least impressions of it, in front of him. Very, very basic things that look like leaves. And within 100 million years, you've got animals crawling out onto land. Yeah, well, for a long time, life was fairly simple. We had very unique organisms, as Alex was mentioning before, where we don't really understand their morphology and biology. But when we get to about uh, 530 million years ago, we come upon the Cambrian explosion. And the Cambrian explosion is very important because this is where we see an explosion in the diversity of life, all sorts of different animals, not just simple animals, but animals that are plant-like all the way up into giant predators. And it's after this period of time that organisms start to focus and start to evolve in different directions into animals that we have around today. And in the Cambrian explosion, we actually have the precursors to vertebrate animals. So these are animals that have backbones, and these are the animals that eventually turn into tetrapods. What would the land that these animals were beginning to come up onto have looked like? What was there already, if anything? Well, at the beginning of the Devonian and up until sort of the precursors before uh, tetrapods were starting to evolve, there wasn't really anything on land. Almost everything lived in the water. So if you actually got in a time machine and you went back to the Devonian and you stood on the land, it would have been really, really quiet. There wouldn't have been any birds flying around and chirping. There wouldn't have been any bees humming around. I bet if you lived in Britain, it would have been raining. (laughs) There might have been a bit of rain. But it would have been a very, very quiet place. The waters were a different story. They were very, very active with marine life. Uh, From invertebrates, so things like shelled animals and corals and stuff like that, all the way through to a massive diversity of fish. And so it's during this time that the fish start to change. Certain groups of fish start to change. These are known as the lobe fin fishes. They're called lobe fin fishes because their fins are actually much different than other fish fins. They start to develop bones in their fins that look much like our bones. So they start to develop things like a humerus and a radius and ulna. 
And it's from within these lobe fin fishes that we see the evolution of tetrapods. So if it was such a boring place on land, what was the lure for these animals to come out of the water and want to go onto the land? There, there were plants there, presumably. Yeah, so by the time that these animals were starting to want to come out onto the land, we have the beginning of plants actually forming communities on land. So we start to see an environment which could protect animals. The waters were incredibly busy, big predators, huge fish, you know, a few meters long. They were really fierce predators. So if you could survive out of the water just for even a short period of time during the day, you probably had a very good shot of surviving that day. But there was also a food source because we now have some invertebrates living on the land. Another factor is oxygen. So we're starting to see the development of plant communities on the land. And plants actually burrow their roots into soils. And this starts to erode the soils. And that actually gets deposited into water. And we also have leaf litter and stuff like that. And when that goes into the water as well, we start to reduce the amount of oxygen in the water because things are decomposing. Now, these early fish tetrapod animals were actually living right at the water's edge. And this water might have become depleted in oxygen. So if you could find a way to get your head out of the water and breathe oxygen from the air, you might have also had a better shot of living. What's your name? Miluka, and I'm from Cambridge. My question is, when you said that to go out onto the land, the animals had to change all their muscles and their bone structure, how much time would it take? That's a very good question. I would have to say, I mean, as I said, the period of time where we go from animals that are very much fish into animals that are tetrapods, so animals with limbs with digits, is about 50 million years. So it took about 50 million years to get to the body plan that we see today in a modern tetrapod. I am Nico, and I'm from Long Stanton. And my question is, what's the amphibian up there? There's a very large animal on the screen behind you. What is the animal? The animal? Well, this is an animal that I've worked on a lot. Its name is Ichthyostega, and it is an early tetrapod. So it's actually one of the first early tetrapods to evolve. So this animal isn't a fish anymore. It actually has limbs with digits, so it has fingers and toes, but it still mainly lived in the water. How big was that? That animal could have got up to about a metre and a half, so it's probably the size of a giant dog. It looks like a massive lizard, doesn't it? It's a sort of big lizardy-like thing with very big teeth. Yeah, it, it, it wouldn't have lizard-like skin. It would be more like salamander-like skin or fish-like skin. But it was a fearsome predator in the water. It had a huge head with massive teeth. It had huge, big arms. And it had a long tail. And if you look at the very back, what you'll notice is that it has its hind limbs sticking out. And they very much look like paddles. They actually look like seal flippers. And so this animal is really, really good at swimming. But because it had these big forelimbs, it actually could haul, well, we think, that it could haul itself out of the water using its forelimbs and probably bask in the sun on mud flats and perhaps even uh, feed on uh, some of the animals that were on the, the shoreline. How do you know it was pulling itself up? Have you got sort of fossilised tracks left by these creatures in the mud? 
Well, we actually performed a study on this animal. So part of the research that I'm involved in is actually reconstructing the 3D skeletons of these very early tetrapods. And to do this, we use x-rays, and specifically we use micro CT scans. And what that allows us to do is force x-rays through the fossils, and then we can resolve the fossils that are hidden inside the rock. And we can use intricate um, 3D modeling software to go through, color in each of the different bones, and eventually you can can come up with a whole three-dimensional reconstruction of the skeleton. And from this, we can start to move the limbs around. How did they move? How much mobility was there? And what can that tell us about how the animal was moving? Okay. This picture on the wall is green, like a lot of the dinosaurs that I've seen. But Chris Barrow has asked us on Facebook, how do we know what colour dinosaurs were? If we talk about what colour early tetrapods were, that is a very hard question indeed, because we actually don't have the material in order to test that. If we want to talk about the color of dinosaurs, well, a lot of work has been done recently looking at the chemical signatures of feathers using various uh, new technologies. And some of the techniques that they've used in order to examine these feathers have shown that different dinosaurs, well, the non-avian dinosaurs, might have been, for instance, white or black or red in color. Uh, My name's John from Steeper Bumpstead in North Essex. Is there any, any evidence that any animals went back? into the sea. Oh, lots of animals went back into the sea. So one question is, it's very hard to determine if a very early tetrapod had an ancestor that was uh, land-based and then really quickly went back into the sea because the timeline isn't that great. Our fossils, we get one at a time. But I mean, whales are mammals that went back into the sea. We have in the Jurassic um, and Triassic, a huge amount of reptiles that went back into the sea. Things, these are called plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs. Ichthyosaurs actually looked like dolphins, but they were indeed reptiles. So there's many instances of tetrapods going back into the sea. And it's probably for a very similar reason for why tetrapods came out, you know, to get away from predators, to find food sources that weren't being exploited. My name's Arusha, I'm from Cambridge, and my question is, is there a particular place on the planet where most of this coming out of the sea onto the land happened? Yes, one of the areas that produces a lot of early tetrapod fossils is in Greenland, just like we heard about uh, the beginning of life. So they actually have rocks which are of uh, an ideal age, the Devonian period, in order to try and trace this evolutionary transition. Some really important fossils also come from Arctic Canada. And recently, there's some stuff in uh, the UK even. So up in Scotland, there's some really important specimens that can really give us some insight into this important event. Hello, it's Liz from Longstanton again. When you say that you find these fossils of the animals coming out of the water in these places, would it be like it is now, cold and... Or was the climate completely different when they did it? The continents, as you know them today, weren't like that in the past. So, for instance, Greenland uh, wouldn't be way up north. It actually would have been much closer to the equator than it is today. So they would have been more in temperate climates. And there's some ideas that perhaps during this time, there might have even been some arid conditions sometime, and then even some really wet conditions. So uh, it depends on what specific formation that you're looking in. 
in terms of what the exact environment was like, but the animals where we find them, that's not the environment that they were living in back 400 million years ago. Which is why you don't find many fossils in Blackpool. (laughs) Even they've got taste. Stephanie Pierce, ladies and gentlemen. Time to get experimental again. Dave and Kate, what have you got for us? I love Jurassic Park. I don't know about you guys. And in Jurassic Park, you see some of the dinosaurs like Diplodocuses walking really slowly. And you see that T-Rex famously chasing after the Jeep. But how do we know how fast those dinosaurs moved? Dave? Well, so what we've been talking about so far is mostly about bones and fossilised bones. And that gives you some idea of how an animal might move but it doesn't necessarily tell you how fast it went. Um, the other big type of fossil are what are called trace fossils, so things which animals have left behind. And one of the big one of those is footprints. So we're going to do an experiment looking at your footprints, moving at different speeds. Do we need a volunteer again? We need a volunteer who doesn't mind their shoes getting slightly damp. Do we want to take the person who hasn't asked a question yet? You at the end there, do you want to give us a hand? So what's your name? Ben. So your name's Ben. Where are you from, Ben? Cambridge. Dave, what do we need Ben to do? So what we want to do is get Ben to make a sort of trace fossil. So we want to make him to make some footprints. Um, in order not to make too much of a mess, we're going to make, get you to make footprints in just water. And we want to get you to move at different speeds and see how that affects your, um, what's left behind on the ground. So we need to get your shoes wet first, I suppose. Come on, then. Uh, we've got a tray of water here right at the end. Step right in. Okay, so Ben, now what we've got is um, a piece of paper here, brown paper, so we should be able to see your wet footprints on there. And we just sort of gently saunter along, um, along this piece of paper until you get to the end. So just walk slowly and we'll see what the footprints look like. We're aiming for a nonchalant Cambridge stroll here. Fab, walk round along the edge, back round to us. So we can sort of see that, there's, we can see that there's footprints a certain distance away, and this is what we'd find in a trace fossil. You'd find the empty footprints of a, of a dinosaur. I don't know which dinosaur Ben's trying to be, but yeah. The Benosaur. Okay, so Ben, now what I want you to do is get your feet nice and damp again. Okay, and now I want you to slowly jog along this one. So Ben, if you come down to the end here, if you look at the ones on the right are the ones with you sauntering, acting cool, and the one of you in the middle is you doing your Usain Bolt impression, what differences can you see? Um, the one in the middle is, is um, a sort of a length difference between the footsteps. So are they further apart or closer together? Further apart. So, yeah, and actually, if we did this lots of times and drew a graph with people, if, as long as you take the, the same person at the same height, you'd actually quite a nice um, line. And so if, you can, if we could find the footprints of Ben, then we know how fast Ben was running when he made the footprints. Now, that might not sound very useful, but the really interesting thing is that if you take into account how high your hips are, and how high, high the hips are on just about any animal, you get a really, really tight relationship between the distance between the footprints and how fast it was going. If we found Ben as a fossil years from now and we worked out the, the height of his hip, we'd be able to work out how fast he was running when he was sauntering along a knot. And Dave is putting up a clever graph to illustrate that. So up here we have a graph um, on the screen behind us and on one side it's got the stride length taking into account how high your the hip, hips are and the other one is how fast it's going to take into account high, how big the hips are and you can see that even though they've got lots of different creatures everything from camels to sheep to rhinos, even ostriches um, if you plot those on a graph considering how fast they're going you get a really straight line. So scientists reckon that that probably holds for dinosaurs as well so if we know which dinosaur made the footprints and how big it was we know how fast it was going so is that what you use stephanie something similar or are you more computer modeling rather than footprint wet footprints on, well, on bits well of paper? although we do have 
some footprints from this period of time in the Devonian, it's very unclear which animals made them. So if you don't know, as, as was said, if you don't know what animals made them, it's very difficult to say. And also these animals move in a, a very different way. You know, if you think of a salamander moving, they've got very, very sprawled limbs and they kind of move side to side and they don't move very fast. I don't know if anyone's tried it with an amphibian. I don't think we've got one to hand unless anyone's <laughs> hiding one in their handbag. Um, but that's something to try at home. Gra- grab your pet, run them along a piece of paper and see what happens. If you do it with a salamander, let me know the, know the results, please. Can we also give Ben a, a massive round of applause? We're listening to a special edition of The Naked Scientist recorded here at the Cambridge Science Centre. We do this once a month where we bring a wonderful crowd of the assembled Cambridge public who come in and have the opportunity to actually do our job for us and grill some of Britain's finest minds. We're talking this week about the science of paleontology, in other words, things that are hundreds of millions of years old, like most of the politicians in the House of Lords. Uh, Our guests this time are Alex Liu, who actually studies some of the first life on Earth, Stephanie Pierce, who looks at how things moved and came out of the water onto land, and sitting next to Stephanie from Imperial College is JT, John Tennant. Hello, John. So you're interested in actually not where life came from, but where it went, how it got wiped out, why it disappeared. Yeah, I look at very long and large patterns in the history of life on Earth. And this is a um, field of study called macroevolution. So macro just is Latin for big. Evolution is obviously everyone's favourite subject. And in the fossil record, over the last 500 million years or so, we're punctuated by these very catastrophic periods called mass extinctions. And I look at a period about 150 million years ago, where depending on how you look at the fossil record and how you interpret what we've got at that uh, particular period in time, whether or not it can like, achieve the status of a mass extinction or not. So a mass extinction is usually where something like 75% to 95% of all life on Earth just gets absolutely obliterated. And there are usually many different reasons for this. You know, everyone loves the uh, end of the dinosaurs, meteor strike story. But you know, I look in a lot more detail to see whether there were potentially biological factors, such as what animals were eating or something which might have drove them to extinction. How do you know that there's been a mass extinction? I mean, if, if I was to walk out into Cambridge now and there'd been a mass extinction, it might be obvious, but how do you know from the fossil record that all to 75% of life disappeared? So there are periods of time where we have lots and lots and lots of fossils, and there are periods of time when we have very little. So around 250 million years ago, there was an event which we think uh, happened called the Permo-Triassic mass extinction, where up until this point we had quite a lot of fossils happening. Uh, we had a lot of fossils around, both on land and in the sea, but then all of a sudden it's just gone and there's almost nothing. And we think that's because you know, the continents came together and there was this massive volcanism happening and it just made life very uncomfortable for you on Earth and they all just kind of died out and they were actually quite lucky to hang on. There were a few stragglers which survived on and then went on to radiate again, but then about 50 million years later, uh, we're hit again with another mass extinction. And, you know, we, we actually find the last 500 million years or so punctuated in time by these uh, large extinction periods. So Is cool. the cause of the mass extinctions written into the geology? If you study rocks, can you generally find out what's happened? Yeah, to a degree. There's a lot of debate at the moment whether there are more kind of biological factors which are recorded in the fossils themselves which drove extinction or environmental and geological factors which are recorded in the rocks themselves which drove extinctions. So if you go back to the end of the non-avian dinosaurs again, we find evidence for a meteor strike like hidden in the geology at this time. There's a very thin 
layer of rock all around the globe. And if you um, look at the elements and stuff which are preserved in it, we actually find an element called iridium. And there's a little spike there over time, and it tells us that at the same time as the dinosaurs went extinct, or you know, most of the dinosaurs went extinct, we find this spike in extraterrestrial material. So extraterrestrial meaning not from Earth. And if you combine that with evidence which we have down in Mexico for a huge meteor impact, and perhaps even another one just off the coast of India, then we actually find very strong and compelling evidence for a, a meteor strike in the geological record. And we also find the biological record being severely depleted in fossils at that time. When you say huge, how talk, big is huge? I think the, the one down in uh, Mexico is 120 kilometers wide. So that's one big meteor. My name is Nico. And I'm from Longstanton. And my question is, how do you know that the meteor was the only thing that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs? Yeah, how do you know that? We don't. Um, you know, this is one of the things I'm studying, but at a different period in time. It's very nice to have this story of just one meteor coming along and, you know, just obliterating life on Earth. But what might have happened is actually something like a, more of a perfect storm of events. So imagine life being pushed to the very brink. You know, you have something like mass volcanism happening and churning up tons of gases and ash into the atmosphere. Like imagine walking around Cambridge and a volcano has just gone off. It's going to be very difficult to breathe. And we think this kind of put a lot of pressure on animals just to stay alive and it made the environment very unlivable. And then just as things were getting, you know, really, really, really bad, a meteor comes along and just smashes everything apart and, you know, life is just very unhappy at that time, unfortunately. So it's not just one thing. It could be several different things contributing towards ecological breakdown, environmental breakdown. And it's also very important to look at that because when you consider what humans are doing today to the planet, we're pumping carbon into the atmosphere. And if you kind of think that's like almost an analogue for mass volcanism happening, we can look at these extinction events, see how animals responded, see that they suffered greatly. And, you know, we can almost kind of predict exactly what's going to happen in the future. Hello, my name is Graydon. And do you know how um, the meteor killed all of the dinosaurs, even if they're really far away? Even if they're really far away. I mean, can we, can we slightly adjust that also to add to the point that why did some things not disappear? Because, you know, crocodiles, for example, mm. their, their ancestors have been around for 300 plus million years and they're still here, aren't they? So, so that's an excellent question. Why did some things succumb and not others? Some things are just better designed for surviving. So if we take the typical dinosaur analogue again, dinosaurs at this time when the meteor hit were very big and they were very specialised. And generally, the bigger you are and the more pressure that's put on an ecosystem which you're living in, the more likely you are to die because you need more resources to survive. So if you have things like small birds and crocodiles which are living in the oceans, which might not have been as affected, then there's different probabilities that they might have survived or died. My name is Malcolm and I'm from Longstanton. My question is, how did the meteorite affect flying animals when, apart from the ones that were right under the meteor? So there were two different groups of flying animals at this time. There were the pterosaurs and there were the birds. They were actually in direct competition in a kind of duel for the skies. Imagine the Battle of Britain. You have giant pterosaurs. Some of them were humongous. That's like 10 or 15 metres in wingspan. And birds generally got a lot smaller. So it might have been, again, that pterosaurs were just too big. There just wasn't enough food or, you know, just places for them to live. But perhaps the ability to fly as well meant that they could migrate away from areas which were being worse affected by the meteor. So maybe if you could fly down to the poles. But again, this is very much an ongoing point of research. People are just beginning to um, be able to assemble the data sets which are enabling them to ask these massive questions about extinction. Kate? Okay. 
Bill Pope, who's at Underbundle on Twitter, <laughs> asks, uh, what might the world look like today if the Permian Great Extinction hadn't happened? Probably a lot better, because there probably wouldn't be any humans around to destroy the planet, so life would probably actually be doing quite well. Can you just um, tell us what the Permian Oh, sorry, the, extinction Permian, is. the Permian extinction, the end Permian extinction, was a, an event 252 million years ago, where all of the continents that we know today crashed together into a giant supercontinent called Pangaea. And there are a combination of factors relating to this, which led to about the wiping out of about 95% of life on Earth. So if you have reduced coastlines because you've got all the continents coming together, there's less coastal environments for animals to live in the ocean. If you've got less animals going on, then there's you know, ecosystem degradation. Things begin to, you know, like food chains and things break down and there's less suitable places for animals to live. And if you all of a sudden, you know, you like living in a shallow sea, and then all of a sudden your shallow sea is replaced by a really big deep sea, you're not going to be too happy there, and you're probably going to go extinct or radiate or evolve into something different. Uh, at Kevin Nagel asks, um, I think this is a sort of fight question, which were more vicious, prehistoric land animals like T-Rex and raptors or crocodiles and sharks? Well, if somebody wants to pit a T-Rex against a shark, I'm pretty sure the shark will win because the T-Rex will drown. Uh, <laughs> um, it's a very interesting question. You know, we don't actually know what T-Rex and raptors were like. We have Jurassic Park to go on, but these are obviously exaggerated because directors aren't scientists and they just want what is going to draw in an audience. But we don't really know. I mean, if you look at a chicken or something, they're actually really friendly. Mm-hmm. Have you ever picked up a chicken? You know, it's not going to come and try and bite your head off. They're generally quite friendly. And, you know, most birds are, apart from occasionally pooping on your car. There's not that much which they do, which is really life-threatening. So we really don't know that much about the actual behaviour of dinosaurs to guess. Let your imagination run right. So do you think they're actually quite friendly, then, some of them? You don't think they were violent? I probably wouldn't try and hug a T-Rex still, but maybe. You don't know. Um, so these really giant different. birds that lived in South America are terror were, birds, yes, weren't they? Terror I mean, these had a beak a metre long, some of them, even bigger. And I don't think they were notoriously friendly, were they? I think they were, they were peckish. Um, probably. I don't think humans are around, really, to record that much. But if you consider things like ostriches, again, today, ostriches are very primitive birds, probably some of the closest ancestors we have to dinosaurs. They're generally quite friendly. If you, you know, start poking them or, you know, trying to annoy them, then they're going to get a little bit angry. But generally, they're quite placid. It, it just Let's depends hear it on for how dinosaurs. they're feeling. What's your question? My name's Lisa. I'm from Cambridge. Are you able to detect disease? Disease? Yes, we are, actually. I think... Um, Again, if I use T-Rex as an example, you can actually, if you look at the jawbones in T-Rex, you can actually see evidence of like bacterial infection things. And I think there might even be some evidence of cancerous growths in the bones of dinosaurs as well. You can actually, you know, maybe suggest this is a cause of death. Um, They probably didn't have chemotherapy or anything back then to give them really much of a fair shot. But yeah, you certainly do see traces of disease and often these are just left in the remains of bones. And it it can be quite interesting. Like This this is evidence of um, what was happening to an animal when it was alive. When you find a bone of a dinosaur, that's evidence of just it being dead. But if you find these marks and things on a fossil, you know, disease, um, even things like bite wounds and things, you can actually see what was going on during life or what killed the, uh, the actual animal. And it's really quite cool. Kate, anything on, on the Twitter? Or? Um, Full Circle Man on Twitter is trying to give us all nightmares. He says, what fossils do we have on spiders? Were they larger and more venomous? Mr Invertebrate, would you like to take that one? <laughs> Alex, do, any, do, do spiders fossilise? They do, don't they? I mean, spiders and also do... in amber. We've got amber spiders, yes. haven't we? So spiders do use fossilies. I think there's one in the Cambridge Museum, actually, in the Sedgwick, which is called Mega Arachne. And it's 300 million years old and about... 
what's that, 60 centimetres in diameter. Very, very large spider fossil. I think the fossil record of spiders goes back to around 400 million years ago. But the interesting thing as well is you don't just get the spiders, there's also evidence that their webs have been preserved, and particularly in amber. And I know there's an example of Cretaceous amber from Sussex, actually, where if you look with a microscope, actually inside the amber, you can see these little coiled up bits of spider web. So not only do we know that the spiders are present, but we also see that they're behaving in exactly the same way as modern spiders are. My name is Corin and I'm from Cambridge. So you're talking about amber and that takes us to that famous moment in the Jurassic Park movie. Is there ever a chance that we could bring dinosaurs back? So there are some very hopeful scientists out there um, and they're generally considered to be a little bit crazy in the paleontological community. There's research going on at the moment over in Japan where some guy's trying to almost reverse engineer a dinosaur from a chicken. Um, so, you know, what he wants to do is mess with a chicken embryo and mess with its genes a bit so that you superficially create something that looked a bit like a velociraptor. So you won't, you know, even in your wildest dreams, you won't ever get an actual dinosaur. You'll probably have something that, you know, lays eggs, clucks, and goes around going... and looks like a dinosaur. <laughs> but it won't ever actually be one. They're gone forever. And until we create some kind of zombification process, it's not going to happen. But as well as that, I think we mentioned earlier that something about proteins and molecules had been found. And this is um, by a, a team of scientists led by Mary Schweitzer over in the US. And they believe that they've actually found like the, almost the structural residue of DNA. And they've used various techniques borrowed from biotechnology and biochemistry to actually demonstrate that we have this you know, extremely fine level preservation which you know, even 5 or 10 years ago we wouldn't have been able to dream of finding and at the end of one of her papers she said oh I think in about 5 or 10 years we'll be able to have about 20% of the genome of a T-Rex and there's a reason why that paper never really made it particularly uh, much in the media and it's because she was dismissed as a bit of a wacko uh, after that but you know if you kind of open your imagination we could be able to do things in future. I mean, there are incredible developments in genomics and being able to sequence DNA happening. It's just uh, a case of what the fossil record lets us do. I was just going to add to that. There's another team in America. We may not be able to get dinosaurs back, but there is a team in California looking to try and get mammoths and also the passenger pigeon. That's their first effort because it didn't go extinct too long ago, I think 60 years or so. But from genetic material for the passenger pigeon, that's from a museum specimen. And the mammoth, they've found frozen mammoths about 10,000 years old in Siberia. They can actually extract DNA from there. So although amber's not involved, you can still get the DNA. And it's not perfect, but they are trying to find host animals like elephants for the, for the mammoth that they might be able to bring back those sort of animals. We'll just uh, interject a second because our third experiment needs a little bit of time. So, Kate and Dave, what have you got in mind? So, um, see, we've already got a shout-out. So, some prehistoric creatures are really funny-looking, and this is my favourite. Chris, can we get a mic to say what that is again? Hang on. What's this? Dimetrodon! See, everybody knows it but me. Uh, So the Dimetrodon, as we can see, has a big sail on its back. Uh, Now, that doesn't look to me like it's for fighting. Uh, Dave, what's it for? So, again, it's a fossil record, so no one knows for certain. But one of the theories is it's all to do with heat and how well it can 
take advantage of the temperature in the outside world. Now, to get an idea why having some kind of big sail on your back might be useful um, in the outside world, what I'm going to do is look at how water changes temperature in two different ways. I've got a pot of water here, and I've got a thermometer. And at the moment, it's sitting at about 56 degrees centigrade. And I have two identical glasses, and I'm going to fill each one of them with the same amount of water. Okay, so... You can imagine this is an animal which is producing lots of heat and it's nice and warm. And now I'm going to consider two different shapes of animal. One of them is a nice kind of compact animal, like a glass of water, for example. The other one is a really kind of spread out animal. So I'm going to pour um, really big flat animals. I'm going to pour the water into a tray so it's only about half centimetre deep. So this water in the tray is like the blood going through the Dimetrodon's sail, I suppose. So if the blood was hotter than the environment outside and it was pumping around the sail, then that would be very similar, yes. Or if you're thinking about other modern animals, it's very like the blood going through the ears of an elephant. So we'll wait and see what happens to the water after some more questions. OK, any more questions uh, while we wait for the water to do its thing? Yes, we've got one over here. Um, hi, my name's Luke and I'm from Cambridge and... Going back to the subject about the fossils of the enormous spider, if you found one of those alive and it bit you and it was like venom- venomous, and what would happen to you? Would like you die or? <laughs> they did have venom, did they? These these spiders, do we think? Yes, we're not entirely sure whether this particular spider had venom. I mean, there's spiders around today which don't, and obviously spiders that do, and. It's really the strength of the venom that determines what happens to you, whether you'll die from the bite or whether you'll just get a little bit ill or whether actually nothing will happen at all. But with something that big, I'd imagine it would leave some quite large puncture holes, at the very least. Um, Arusha from Cambridge. Just following on from the spider question, a spider that's 60 centimetres in in length, what might it have fed on? (laughs) John's just suggested humans. That's not, <laughs> not the case because humans weren't around. But there's quite a lot of large spiders around today. So in the tropics of Malaysia, there are bird-eating spiders that can reach 30 or 40 centimetres in diameter, and they do catch birds. So if you have something that big, presumably it was feeding off something that, or could feed off things that were a lot larger than any of the other spiders around at the time could. But the interesting thing about the Carboniferous, the period that these giant spiders and the giant scorpions were living, is that pretty much every type of insect we see at the time could reach giant sizes. There were um, dragonflies with wingspans of 70 centimetres. There were millipedes that are several metres long, well, not several metres, maybe a couple of metres long. And it is the one period in time in Earth history when things could get very, very large compared to modern organisms and the idea for why that might be is that there's evidence that oxygen levels on the planets were a lot higher at that particular point in time so current levels were at 21 percent of our atmosphere is oxygen the estimates are that in the carboniferous 35 percent of the atmosphere was oxygen and if you're an insect the way you breathe is almost like diffusion So you're limited in your size by the amount of oxygen that's around you because the oxygen can only diffuse a certain distance before you've used it all up into your body. So if there's higher oxygen levels, any organism that survives by diffusing in the oxygen can get to bigger sizes. And we think that's what was driving this 
this massive evolution, this gigantism at that time. Kate? Uh, Jeremy on Facebook wants to know, what gap in our knowledge of prehistory are you guys most vexed by? What's missing from our knowledge? John? Well, one of the things which we always hear is how biased the fossil record is. People who study like modern animals and DNA, they love throwing that one at us. They're like, oh, you can't do anything with a fossil record. It's so biased. And by this, they mean that only in certain periods of time and in certain places do we find certain types of fossils. But, you know, paleontologists, we don't see that as a kind of end to all things. We actually have now many different techniques where we can overcome these biases. And although our data may never be as good as, you know, going out into a forest and being able to sample every animal out there, we're certainly able to overcome some of these biases, which other scientists actually think makes us almost like, you know, not able to be useful in any way. But yeah, I'd say just what the fossil record is able to offer us can sometimes be incredibly frustrating. I mean, we can have periods of five or ten million years where there's just nothing there. Stephanie? Oh, gosh. Well, I'd love to go out there and find an amazing early tetrapod fossil. (laughs) That would be really great. It's actually, well, for me, it would be amazing to see the point in time where we actually see the evolution of modern locomotion behaviors. So as I said, with uh, some of the early tetrapods that I've worked on, they sort of weren't really using their limbs like uh, modern animals do. They were sort of hauling themselves out of the water onto mud flats. And I'm really interested in at what point in time did animals put four limbs on the ground, lift their body weight off the ground, and start moving one limb at a time? Um, because after that happened, we start to see an explosion in the way and a diversification in the way that animals move. We not only have animals moving one leg at a time, we start seeing animals walking, running, animals that are moving their limbs under their body, animals that are going from four limbs to two limbs, like we see in Tyrannosaurus rex, and everything in between. They can gallop, they can run fast like a cheetah, and then eventually, of course, they can fly in the air. So this point where animals start to move like a modern tetrapod is really, really important. Kate and Dave, how's your water coming along? How's the water coming on, Dave? You, you've been measuring it as we're going, going along. So if we measure the temperature of the one which has been sitting in the nice compact glass... So what kind of animal is this representing? So this is something kind of spherical. So if you imagine a kind of really big fat animal, uh, polar bears are a really good example of this, kind of really big fat and almost round. Um, that water is now at about 51 degrees centigrade. So it hasn't come down by that much? It's only come down by maybe 5 or 6 degrees centigrade. Whereas the ones which have been spread out, so this is an animal with great big long kind of spindly limbs or kind of big flat animal, the temperatures come all the way down to about 36 degrees centigrade. And this is because basically the amount of heat, things can only lose heat at their surface. So be it animals or lumps of water, um, if you've got a small surface, you're a really compact thing, then you can't lose or gain heat very well. If you're spread out, you've got much more surface, so you can gain or lose heat in a lot more places at the same time. So our dimetrodon on the wall here, uh, was it trying to cool itself down or warm itself up? Well, the theories go that it was probably trying to warm itself up because it was a predator, it was trying to catch things. And if it could hang around in the sun and have this great big sail to warm up its blood, then all the chemical reactions go in faster, which means it can run faster. So it can catch the other animals who are kind of still all a bit cold and a bit kind of sleepy in the morning. It can kind of charge after them and grab them and get its breakfast very efficiently. So the early dinosaur catches the dinosaur, I suppose. Kate, thank you very much. Well, that is pretty much it. It remains for us all to say a very big thank you to our guest panel, who were Alex Liu, Stephanie Pierce, and John Tennant, and our kitchen scientists, 
who are Dave Ansell and Kate Lamble. Thank you very much to Hannah for doing the recording this week, Hannah Critchlow, and thank you very much to you, of course, for providing all of these amazing questions. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. My name's Chris Smith, and we'll be back here again next month looking at how your brain works. <laughs>